0: Your boy's back, people. Greetings. What's happening? What's going on? How are we feeling? Hope everybody's doing well on this fabulous Monday here as I deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content. And for those who have been banging with me for now 95 episodes, that's right, just five away from 100, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, October 21st, in the year of our Lord 2019. Glad to be back after a week in Greece. Well, really about nine days, which I'll get into pretty much in the next couple minutes. But before I get to that, here's what's on tap for this week's pod. We'll go through everything that's happening in the NBA. That's right. The season opens tomorrow. I wish I had some time to record a preview, but being away and not being able to schedule someone to come on was a little bit tricky. And I'm obviously not going to do an NBA preview two or three days after the season has begun. But you'll get my take on everything that's happening throughout the association. I'll also talk about the over-unders, which ones will I pick for this year, which I usually am atrocious when it comes to that. But you'll get my take on everything that's happening with the hardwood in the association later on in the podcast. We'll also get into everything that's happening in the NFL week seven. Not much to scream at. Uh, actually, it's a little bit quiet. And it doesn't look like it's going to get any better when we look at the schedule this coming week. But again, football is in full swing, as well as college football. Tua viola I can't even pronounce the guy's name, quarterback from Alabama. He's going to be out for a couple of weeks with the big showdown set up for November 9th against LSU. I'll talk about what kind of impact that may have for the Crimson Tide moving forward. But we'll kick off this program before I even get into anything sports-related. I was in Greece for the last uh, nine days. Well, I got back late Thursday night, and obviously that overlapped during the trip where on Monday, a week ago today, I was in Santorini. And for those who have never been to Greece, I tell you, it's a place where you must go. It is beautiful, especially Santorini. Uh, how could you not love that island? How could you not love It's actually on a volcano when you think about it. But the reason why I bring Greece up is because even in this day of technology, in the day and age of how news travels so fast throughout the web and pretty much get it at your fingertips, it's actually tricky to get not necessarily scores or highlights or anything like that, but when you're not watching games and you're not really getting the full scope And thank God for YouTube, because I was able to at least get some highlights, of, especially of the baseball. But it is tricky when you're not watching these games and not really getting the full bore, the full concentration of every pitch, every play. Same for the NFL, for that matter. But again, on top of that, there's a seven-hour difference. So when a lot of these games are kicking off, whether it's the NFL at 1 o'clock and it's 8 o'clock in Greece, p.m., that is, or especially with the baseball, when it's starting at 8 p.m. and it's 3 in the morning. For instance, I couldn't watch the Sunday night football game with the Steels and Chargers, and I know that was a bore to begin with, but even if I wanted to watch that, the game was starting in Greece at 3.20 in the morning, and I'm on vacation. Listen, I love sports. You know I'm here each and every week, and of course, last week was the one week where, understandably so, I'm not going to be on the air to discuss anything, especially if I'm not watching a lot of this stuff, but I tell you, the time difference it really does test your mettle when it comes to wanting to absorb a lot of this information to get into a lot of the highlights, the games, strategies, etc. Because when you're on vacation, and especially when you're with your girlfriend, you can't be attached to your phone 24-7 to try to find the latest and greatest of what's happening in the world of sports. So that's why I come to you this week to kind of I don't want to say it's a mishmash because, of course, this is going to be a very detailed and also very structured podcast. But at the same time, if there are things that I miss out on, forgive me ahead of time. I apologize. Because two weeks, with all the news that has circulated over the last, like I said, 10 to 14 days, it's certainly going to be a lot to digest. And I'm not going to have a three-hour podcast to bore you to tears, even if you are the most avid sports fan. So, with that being said, go to Greece if you're a sports fan, it's tough because of the time difference. And obviously, being able to get all the information possible to prepare yourself after the fact is the challenge in its own right. But that's why I'm here to deliver not only credible, but also informative and entertaining sports talk for the masses. So let's get right to it. And there is no better way to start in late October when we're talking about the baseball season. And I said this three weeks ago on the podcast. If you did not listen then, You could go back to the archives Listen for yourself Because last year at this time I was very generous To the Yankee fan I certainly was very light Considering in my past Sports talk show days Whether it was on the internet At Blog Talk Radio Or even community radio Where probably three people Listened to my show On a week in, week out basis But thankfully Because of the platform that I have I could come out and say That at Saturday night Really probably Sunday morning At around 12... 10 a.m. When Jose Altuve hit that bomb of a home run to left center field that sent the Houston Astros to the World Series to play the Washington Nationals and it sent the 2019 New York Yankees packing early for their baseball season it was time for me to utter that beautiful sentence that I love to say each and every year and I've said it for the last 10 years and that is it's another winter that I can sleep in peace because I don't have to hear about the Yankee fan I don't have to hear about the Canyon of Heroes, the parade that will go up there to celebrate their 28th World Championship. I don't have to worry about the bravado. I don't have to worry about the entitlement. None of that goes right out the window. You can't even imagine how happy I was just to see that home run. And of course, I had to be quiet because my girlfriend is a Yankee fan. Her family has a bunch of Yankee fans. And of course, I'm diplomatic. I'm not the jerk Met fan or the jerk anti-Yankee fan. And my friends could attest. But it is very sweet to know that I could sleep peacefully for another winter and to think for the first time in over 100 years that the Yankees have not participated in a World Series in a decade as they did this past one between 2010 and 2019. You have to go back to 1910 to 1919, the last time they did not participate in a World Series throughout the course of those 10 years. But that's all the Cold War I'm going to throw on the Yankees right now because if you look... Even on my social media accounts, I do not talk trash. I do not get so involved or so wrapped up into trolling Yankee fans or anything like that because I know plenty of them. And I know plenty of them that just want to get on my case for being a Met fan and saying how much of a loser I am. so on the And forth. that's fine. I can say all that. And as everybody knows who listens to this podcast, I'm the first one to destroy my team before anybody. So they can't say anything to me in reference to that. But with that being said, they also need to prepare for that – Final out that's recorded against them to know that I'm going to utter that sentence that I just said about two minutes ago. And it is very sweet to know that I could put my feet up and certainly lay in my bed at night not having to hear 28 rings, not to hear greatest franchise ever, pinstripe, whatever. All that is out the window. And even if somebody came to my face and said 27 rings and we still are the best franchise in all sports, my retort no one cares. Nobody. And it's interesting because I actually got into a discussion with my girlfriend during the trip where she says to me, why do you have so much hatred for the Yankees? And I'm not going to get fully into it. Maybe I'll save that for another time. But the bottom line is, is that it all boils down to three things. One is George Steinbrenner back in the 70s. And, of course, living in the Bronx, growing up as a Met fan. If you want to find out why I was a Met fan, just go to the website because I have it all spelt out and written out there as to why I'm a Met fan. That's, at, of course, jreels.com. And with growing up in the Bronx, being a Met fan, being bombarded with insults, nasty comments from my friends and other people as to why I'm a Met fan living in a Yankee town, and of course the fans, especially from 96 on, that 96 to 2001 window was just brutal if you lived here in New York and do not like the Yankees. And I'm not going to get into particulars there, but that's one of the reasons why I can't stand that franchise that plays its games on 161st and River Avenue. But be that as it may, I'll put that all aside now because let's just talk about the team as a whole. The bottom line is this team did not hit in big spots in this series against the Astros. And three of the moments that you could certainly point out, I know game two I didn't really watch. We know that Carlos Correa hit the home run there in the 11th to secure that 3-2 win to bring the series back to the stadium at 1-1. But the other points in this series that the Yankees, if you could look back to this Winter, and I'm sure as a Yankee fan, you're going to be tossing and turning, trying to rest on that, sleep on it, whatever it may be. Is the third inning, I believe it's the third inning or the fourth inning in game three, when they had Garrett Cole on the ropes and Didi hit that ball to right field, which I thought was gone off the bat. I've watched too many games to know that once a fly ball is in right field, it's gone. And for whatever the reason, I know part of the story here so far in October is that baseball's done something with the actual baseballs to where the ball isn't flying out of the ballpark the way it was from late March until late September. And now in October, even the St. Louis Cardinals, who couldn't buy a hit against the Nationals, they complain that the balls, for whatever the reason, aren't carrying the way they were back in the regular season. So now you have the scenario where Didi misses a home run, which at the time they were down 2 nothing. Could have taken the lead 3-2 and who knows how the complexion of that game would have turned out. You look at game four in the first inning when they already had a run in where Zach Greinke walked in a run and certainly had him and the team on the ropes and Gary Sanchez strikes out where if they got a base hit there 3 nothing, that certainly changes the complexion of the game. And then you look at game seven when you had Didi again in another spot, third inning where they just took out. Josh Jacobs, and they bring in Ryan Presley. And the one batter that he faced in Gregorius, he meekly grounds out to Presley where he actually re-injured his knee. And I'm sure you're not going to see him in the postseason or at least in the World Series here. And that was a key spot. And then, of course, you're going to look at those 7th and 8th innings where you had the great defensive plays, even the 6th inning. Those three innings where Gardner got robbed by Josh Reddick. The play by Michael Brantley in left field where Aaron Judge, who was an excellent base runner, I don't know what he was thinking on that play. He gets doubled off. And then the double play on Gary Sanchez, which was executed perfectly between Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa. But then you get to the ninth inning of that game, and even with all the chances that the Yankees had missed in those opportunities that I mentioned, here it was, ninth inning, and once they got the leadoff hitter on, and you thought to yourself, when it got to a one David John LeMayhew as well as he's performed this whole year, and he was the Yankee MVP. That goes without saying. And he's going to get some votes for MVP. He's not going to win it, though. Alex Bregman is, and he had an awful series. Oh, When you look at the Astros, it's so funny. Although they won the series, and they outplayed them, and they are the better team, man, some of their big sticks in that lineup, uh, they went south. Jordan Alvarez? Jeez, could anybody find him on a map? He was atrocious. Alex Bregman, I understand he got some hits here and there, but he was not effective in the series. And even for their low batting averages in Carlos Correa and even George Springer, but they came up with big hits and big home runs and big spots. And that's all he could ask for. But speaking of which, so when LeMahieu comes up and he has an epic at-bat and he's fouling pitches off and the closer Roberto as in there and he's just trying to do whatever it takes to get him out where you have Aaron Judge on deck. And then on the 10th pitch, he takes him deep into the Houston night and right field just over the leaping, attempt of George Springer and right field and when the game was tied I thought to myself with Judge and Torres up next they need to get this next run in because I thought that if for whatever the reason the game was tied although it did benefit the Yankees to a certain extent because now they have all the momentum and even with the bottom going to the top of the order in the bottom of the ninth inning but that was the reason why I thought that the Yankees needed to attack on another run there. Now, as it was, let's say if it was 5-4, if it played out that way, they would have lost 6-5 considering what happened afterwards, which we'll get to. But with LeMahieu's heroics and what he did, and it was nothing short of phenomenal. The guy has had one of those years where you just dream of a free agent. Now, mind you, he's not of the ilk of Mike Piazza when he came here. He's not Jason Giambi. He's not any of those guys. You know, Alex Rodriguez, understand that was a trade. But, of course, he's not in that class when it comes to an upper echelon player in Major League Baseball. So when LeMayu comes here and did the things he did throughout the course of the year, led the league in batting pretty much the whole year, will probably be, be in the top three or four in the MVP balloting when it's all said and done. And for him to hit that home run was pretty much indicative of the type of year he had and knowing that he went out pretty much the way he came in his first year as a Yankee. And then you look at the bottom of the ninth inning and you see what happened where they get the first two outs. George Springer comes up and on five pitches, he gets walked. And I understand everybody's going to look at, oh, why didn't he pitch around Otuve? They should have automatically, intentionally walked him because then you would have pitched to Jake Marisnik, who, if we recall, Brantley got switched out of the game, put Marisnik in for defensive purposes. And of course, that's the ultimate second guess. But how I look at it is, why couldn't he pitch to Springer? Or if that was the case, he was down 2-0 in the account to Altuve. He came back with a 2-1 slider. Why did he go back to the well there? His fastball obviously was off, especially in the at bat to Springer. He was close at a couple of pitches, even on that 3-1 pitch. But still, Chapman had no business to try to play with fire there to even think of Altuve, who, as we all know, is the biggest pain in the neck out there. That is a guy that, no matter what, in big spots, he always seems to come up big. And, of course, in that spot, what does he do? He hits one deep to left field over the white line. And the Astros are American League champions. And it's as bitter as a loss as you could possibly get if you're a Yankee fan. Now, the one problem I have at the end of that, why was Chapman standing on the mound smiling, is beyond me. I'm sure he was exasperated deep down inside. I'm sure he had to smile it off to think, well, wow, I can't believe this guy beat me. But Chapman there, and mind you, Yankee fans, he is going to, I'm not going to say he's opting out. I'll take that back. I was about to say he's going to opt out. But he does have an opt out after this year. Does he become a free agent? I'm sure a lot of GMs are going to look at the last pitch he threw of 2019 and say, "Uh, I'm not willing to give this guy $17 million a year, which he's currently making on his contract, which has two more years after this. You would think that he would stay put and try to seal the deal as a Yankee. But I just didn't understand why he was smiling there at the end of the game when he should have been walking off with his head hanging, knowing that his team has started an early vacation. And the Yankees overall, I get that there was a lot that transpired, especially with the hitting and not being able to hit in the clutch. One guy I got to give kudos to especially in the game six because he did really nothing in the postseason with Giro Oshella. I always thought that the guys like that in the regular season could pound on bad pitching and then sure enough in the big spot they're not going to do anything well we know how great defensively he is but he certainly showed up in a game six when his team absolutely needed it not only making plays in the field but also getting key hits he got that hit like I said to get that rally started in the ninth inning was on base four times Now, granted, again, he had a very bad postseason. But with the money on the line, he certainly rose to the occasion. But when you look at this Yankee team, again, whether it's Stanton and the issues that he had with his health, and you wonder, a lot of the Yankee fans are going to look and think that is Stanton, does he have the mental capacity, the mental makeup to play in this town, considering he didn't show a lot of toughness there? All right, he did play in a game five, DH for Edwin Encarnacion. Carnacion. Struck out three times. Didn't do anything pretty much other than game one when he did hit the home run off Greinke. But of course, the Yankee fan's always going to question his heart as far as playing in a big spot in a big moment when his team needed him the most. You know, Aaron Judge did not have the greatest of postseasons. I mean, he could go up and down the line. But here's the thing, Yankee fans, is you look forward to 2020. How do you improve this team? Now, the first thing, of course, you're going to look at is the starting pitching because you're going to see the Astros your arch nemesis, and look at the top of their rotation and they have three studs or two and a half because Greinke, to me, as good he's a good pitcher. He's not in the class of Verlander or Derek Cole. But it's a thing where when you're the Yankees and although you have a guy in Masahiro Tanaka who can perform under the spotlight, when you have a guy like Luis Severino who has a live arm but he's certainly questionable in a big spot, James Paxton, you certainly saw what he could do, especially in a Game 5 that saved his bacon for their season moving to Houston to play a Game 6. And, of course, I don't know if Domingo Herman. who knows what's going to happen with that scenario, with the alleged domestic violence account that's, uh, of course, against them at this point. But the Yankees, as we all know, they need to get a stud in that rotation. Whether that's Garrett Cole this offseason, who's going to be a free agent, is going to command top dollar, not as if the Yankees can't afford it, or Madison Bumgardner, who is going to be pretty much based on his 2010 to 2014, or I'll say maybe 2016 postseason prowess, because the Giants have not even made the postseason since 2016. So you're going to pay top dollar for a guy who, on the back of his baseball card, is certainly top-notch and for this generation in the postseason, an all-time great, but at the same time, is he going to have that type of performance commanding top dollar that he's going to, him and his representative is going to look for? But to me, the main thing is, and there's one move that I would absolutely make if I'm Brian Cashman. And I know the Yankee fan, this may not be popular with the Yankee fan, but you know what? I think that this would be a very shrewd, but also a good deal. Now, I don't know who they're going to bring back. I didn't think long and hard as to what type of pitcher or a left-handed bat, but I would think more for a pitcher that you'd want to trade this player, and that'd be Gary Sanchez. Sanchez is a guy that, as we all know, he is always a runner in scoring position when he steps to the plate. We understand he's not Johnny Bench behind the plate, but he is a guy, and I get that you probably have to going to deal him to the American League unless you get a National League team that has a good starting pitcher on their in their rotation, and he could catch on in forty games a year. Because it's not as if he's 30 years old. If I had to take a guess, what is Gary Sanchez, 26? And of course, he's still affordable. I believe he's not a free agent until after the 2022 season. So you could bring a lot back just for him alone. If you want to throw Clint Frazier in the deal to get even that much more of a number one or 1A starting pitcher, I'm sure Brian Cashman, he has to really think long, long and hard about that. Because this bullpen scenario, although it worked for the 2015 Royals, to me, it doesn't work for everybody. You need starting pitching. And I don't care what the analytics say. I don't care what the numbers are in 2019 and the way baseball is being played, which I can't stand. Because how is it that Masahiro Tanaka in game one, I believe it was six innings off the top of my head. I know five for sure, but let's say six innings it was. And he threw 67 pitches and he's taking them out to go right to his bullpen. Why? Why would you even tip your hand to... And I get that the team had five days off up until that game, so you want to get your guy some reps. I get that. But if he has a one hitter through six innings and has sixty-seven pitches, why would you even think about taking him out of the game? And I don't want to hear, well, third time around the order, he's the type of guy, he's batting average against is 353 or whatever the numbers are. I know that's not the number, but you get my point. To me, that is nonsense. You throw that them stats out the window. You make sure that Tanaka, until you start seeing signs that he's falling apart or he's getting behind hitters or whatever it may be, then you make your move then. Why would you even consider or even think to take out arguably your best starting pitcher in a game one who's throwing a gem just for the sake of sticking to the formula? Oh, well, we wanted to pitch six innings, so let's get to our bullpen. I can't stand it. Oh, this is brutal. But with that being said, I think Gary Sanchez would be the sexiest chip that you could use to bring back that type of starting pitcher. And I get that the Yankee fan, oh, you know, here's a Met fan trying to say that. No, I'm being reasonable. I mean, think about this. You have too many right-handed hitters and power hitters in your lineup. Obviously, Stanton's not going anywhere. And as much as the Yankee fan will want to ship Stanton for whatever it is, but guess what? He's only going to L.A., if that. I understand on his list it was Astros, Cubs, Dodgers, Yankees. So, right, you're going to send him to L.A., if anything. Cubs aren't going to need him. Or they're not going to look to trade him. And <laughs> You're going to trade with the Astros? And not only yet, the Astros aren't going to take back that contract. So, the bottom line is L.A. Is, would be the most reasonable choice. But, again, he's not going anywhere. you still have him for seven more years. Then... On top of that, when you look at the right-handed lineup that you already have, Judge isn't going anywhere, as you all know. Torres isn't going anywhere, as you all know. Luke Voigt, I guess he's probably still in the contract, going to bring him back. So the one guy that you could certainly trade off of your team to get that starting pitcher is Gary Sanchez. And you could put Austin Romine back there. And before you can say, oh, but that's such a downgrade. Well, Romine is going to be a reliable backstop who doesn't need to hit 30 home runs, who doesn't need to drive in 100 and some RBIs, and even if he bats you 240, 250 with, I don't know, anywhere between 12 to 16 home runs and drives in 50 to 60 RBIs, you're going to live with that. Because that team is based around Judge, Torres, Stanton, and whomever else you want to throw in the mix there. LeMahieu, you got him for another year. Is another right-handed bat who has power, and he's a leadoff hitter. So you don't need another right-handed dominant bat. That's why I said for Sanchez, whether you're going to bring back a pitcher, and to me that would be the, there is no if, ands, or buts in my eyes, in my estimation, that it would bring anything less back than a starting pitcher. But if you're looking for a left-handed power hitter or a good left-handed hitter that makes contact, if you could get that person in that trade with the starting pitcher, then so be it. I would do it. And Brian Cashman, we know he's made those shrewd deals. All you got to do is look back to 2016. Now he's going to bring back a Glaber Torres-like prospect or Clint Fraser in a trade like this when it involves Gary Sanchez. Who knows? Obviously, that's the scouting department and that's the analytics department, whatever it may be that's going to look into that. But he has that one chip that he could trade there. Or two, if you're going to look at Clint Frazier. And there's another guy, right-handed stick. And you're not going to have any room for Fraser next year anyway. So you might as well trade him to get that stud pitcher to put you over the top. Because, quite frankly, offensively, you cannot fix clutch. It's like trying to teach speed. You can't teach it. The Yankees don't need to make many moves. Their bullpen is solid. We'll see what Chapman does. Their rotation needs an upgrade. We all know that. Their lineup is stacked. So I don't want to hear, oh, we got to trade Stanton. Oh, we got to trade this guy. We trade that guy. No. But guess what? If you're going to trade a guy in your lineup where you know that maybe some, some Yankee fans out there may look at Gary Sanchez and say, as much as I love him, and I'm sure if you go through the whole list of players that are expendable on your team, obviously you're not trading Judge. Obviously you're not trading Torres. You're certainly not trading Stanton, because you can't. So the last man left, and I don't want to hear Luke Voigt, because Voigt's not going to bring you back any big-time player. I mean, come on. Let's be serious. Sanchez is your guy. And that's how I look at it. So that's the Yankees there as they head into the sunset for 2019. And their team, they're going to be, if Cashman gets that deal where he either signs a free agent or makes a trade like that in the Sanchez category, I tell you, they could certainly be the favorites to win the whole thing next year. Because they're that close. They are that close. And also, Didi Gregorius, if I'm Cashman, I wouldn't bring him back. And it's nothing against Didi Gregorius. He had a rough postseason. I understand he hit the Grand Slam in Game 2 against Minnesota. He had a great Game 3 when they closed out the Twins. But if you're going to pay him $100 million, then what's going to happen when you have to pay Judge Torres and if Sanchez is still on his team? You know how Steinbrenner always talks about luxury tax. <laughs> well, guess what? It's going to be time to pay the Piper, and the first guy on that list is Didi. And then it's just going to trickle down for better players after that. And, oh, you want to get Garrett Cole on top of that? Mm. Yeah, you certainly got to reconsider that. That's why I don't bring Didi back. You put Torres at short, LeMayu at second, bring in a real first baseman because LeMayu's not a first baseman, as you saw in this postseason. I mean, geez. All you got to look at is game one against Minnesota and that game four atrocity where you couldn't feel the ground ball. And I understand that the ball spinning, top spin, with the, Yeah, but still, uh-uh. If you're a Yankee fan, you've seen enough in at first, get him to his natural position at second. And you call it a day. All right, now as far as this World Series is concerned, now I know the Nats, a lot of people are comparing to the 2015 Mets where they won a game five in L.A. just like the Mets did then and they swept the NLCS just like the Mets did then and we all know what happened after that. And guess what? I'm just going to cut right to the chase people because obviously I've spent the first half hour, almost half hour, talking baseball and there's plenty of other things I want to get to. So kudos to the Nats. Kudos to even Bryce Harper, I'll say. He took the high road and he was very diplomatic in what he said about him not being on the team this year with everything that transpired and him being in Philly and oh, it was a weight off the team's shoulders. Bryce just took it in stride and said, hey, you know, I'm happy for those guys, etc. So good for him. As far as the series is concerned, I'm going to tell you this. It is a starting pitching bonanza. And that's what I love to see as a true baseball fan. So when you have Garrett Cole going up against Max Scherzer tomorrow night, followed by Strasburg and Verlander, and in a game three, you're Chances are it's going to be Greinke and Patrick Corbin. I mean, that's as good as it gets. But I will say this. The Howie Kendricks of the world, who is the CS MVP, and some of the other hitters on their team, when you have a week off to kind of start that engine again, especially when you're going up against this, this type of pitching, good luck. And I hate to bring this up because it involves my team, but when you go back to as far as 2006 when you look at the Tigers of that year who swept the Oakland A's in the ALCS, 07 Rockies when they swept the Arizona Diamondbacks, the 2012 Tigers when they swept the Yankees in an ALCS, the 2014 Royals when they swept the Baltimore Orioles, the 2015 Mets when they swept the Cubs, what happened to all those teams in the process of making it to the World Series? They all lost. And I think the same thing's going to happen here. I know they're on a magic carpet ride. I understand that they're flying high. First World Series in 86 years, going back to the days of the Washington Senators. We get all that. Rendon homecoming for him as he's from the Houston area. Went to Rice College. Big moment for him. Ryan Zimmerman, Mr. National himself. Everybody finally getting to the almost to the mountaintop there for the Nationals, exercising all those demons as far as not making it past the first round of the postseason, and now they finally made it to the NL mountaintop. Or they have one more hill to climb, and I'm sorry. To try to overcome Mount Cole, Mount Verlander, Mount Altuve, Mount Springer, Mount Correa, a team that won two years ago, knows how to win, has been there before, I'm picking Astros in five. I hope it's a long series, and this isn't an anti-Met pick because... Listen, the Nationals, they've been phenomenal here. There isn't anything you could say about what they've done to get to this point. I could talk about Clayton Kershaw, but that was a week and change ago. So they got to this point, they've earned it. But now, after a week off, I believe it hurts. And no matter what the Nationals may say, oh, we really needed this break, oh, this is going to be good for us, so on and so forth, uh uh-uh. I think it's going to be a detriment, especially to the hitters. Not necessarily to the pitching. You would think Strasburg, Scherzer, Corbin, etc. will be fine. The bullpen, as we all know, suspect with Doolittle, Daniel Hudson and company. Although they performed great against the Cardinals, where the Cardinals couldn't buy a hit. But with that being said, I just like the Astros in five here, and they're going to win their second World Series in three years. And quickly, I'm going to get to this managerial situation that's going on here. And... Recently, just reading some of the reports and the rumors that now they're going through their second round of interviews. Whether your name is Carlos Beltran, Joe Girardi, Eduardo Perez, and even Tim Bogar, yes, Tim Bogar, that same Tim Bogar, who I believe is the first base coach of the Nationals, actually played in the Mets in the early to mid '90s. It was a shortstop. And there's also other candidates that were thrown in the mix. I guess they had to do this just to, I don't know if it's a whole Rooney rule. Now, of course, we all know that's an NFL thing. But they interviewed Skip, Skip Schumacher. Schumacher is his name, excuse me. Interviewed him. He was the old Cardinal infielder. I mean, please. If they're looking to bring in Skip Schumacher to be their manager, then the Wilpons need to sell the team. No offense to Skip Schumacher, but please. But now it's come down to the second round and... I said this two weeks ago. I'll say it again. Joe Girardi is the only guy to me that is right for this job. No offense to anybody else who's going for their second round of interviews. I know Beltron supposedly was that close after the 2017 season. But the job was given to Aaron Boone, as we all know. And who knows? Could this guy be the Met manager? It's quite possible. But we'll see. And I'm sure an announcement will probably be made after the World Series. Or if they're going to make a decision, it'll probably be between games five and six, which would be a week from today. Because they're not going to do it when the games are being played that day. Now, we all know the World Series starts tomorrow night, which will be Tuesday, October 22nd. Tuesday and Wednesday in Houston with a day off on Thursday. And then over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the nation's capital, Nationals Park with a day off on Monday, and then, of course, those games as necess- necessary, five, day off, six and seven back in Houston next Tuesday, Wednesday. So with this met- manager deal, again, that's what we have to this point. I know that the Phillies are only looking at Buck Walter, Joe Girardi, or Dusty Baker. Those are their only candidates that they're probably looking to target. Some of those guys that I mentioned, I know that they've also made the rounds as far as other jobs are concerned. We know Joe Madden is now the Angels manager. So we'll just have to wait and see. And hopefully, as I said last week, and I'll say it again, trust in this organization. Let's just hope that they make the right decision in hiring their manager. Because to me, the Mets are that close to making it to a World Series. And the only guy that's going to get them there, I believe, in my heart, is Joe Girardi. All right, let's turn our attention to the NFL, where we are completing a Week 7 tonight here right across the river at MetLife Stadium where the Patriots at 6-0 and are visiting the New York Jets who finally got a win last week and beaten the Cowboys and in the process knocked me out of my knockout pool for 2019 as I picked the Cowboys. Now, we didn't know who was going to be the starting quarterback. We heard all week leading up to that game that Sam Darnold was going to be under center for the start of that game, but not knowing his health concerns, and we all know having that mononucleosis, the spleen, cetera. If he wasn't going to be 100%, I thought it would be Luke Folk. That's the only reason why I picked the Cowboys. But, of course, I got burned as the Jets win their first game of the year. And the Cowboys, who have since bounced back last night winning 37-10 to against the Philadelphia Eagles, reclaiming the division. Uh, so that was my situation. So no more knockout picks from uh, now to 2020. But as far as the rest of the league is concerned, a quiet week. I know you had the big trade last week with Jalen Ramsey going to the Rams from Jacksonville as they get two number one picks. So now the Rams do not have a pick until 2022. And even at three and three, they felt that bringing him in and trading Marcus Peters, their other corner, with Akib Talib on injury reserve for the rest of the year, they felt that we need to trade Peters to the Baltimore Ravens of all teams. And they bring in Jalen Ramsey and they feel that like he's going to be the guy that's going to put them over the top. But I guess they haven't really seen Jared Goff play because he is certainly not performed up to the level that he has over the last couple of years. And as we talked about two weeks ago, him not having that effective Todd Gurley to bail him out, not only in the run game, but also in the receiving game, certainly has not gone a long way for him, knowing that Gurley has not been 100% pretty much since that Saint game in the NFC Championship. But the Rams, at least for yesterday, they snapped that three-game losing streak. They beat the Falcons, who, as crazy as this may sound, even with the Dolphins and the Bengals, winless to this point it's arguable that the Falcons could be the worst team in the NFL and when you're looking at it from a standpoint of the talent that they have they may be right because how could you have Matt Ryan, Julio Jones Devontae Freeman, Keanu Neal Vic Beasley who's on the trade block you have all these players that are pro bowl, all pro caliber players and for whatever the reason they can't buy a victory to save their lives so that's what you got in the Falcons. But the Rams were certainly welcome to the fact that they go down to Atlanta and put a 37 spot on them. So for at least for one week, the Rams have certainly cured some of their ills. But when you look at overall with the week, San Francisco, 6-0, and they've been the surprise to me. I didn't think they were going to be 6-0, and and they made me look bad because I picked them as an under 8.5, and they're just three wins away from doing that. So I look like a uh, horse's ass. Let's put it that way Unless they go into a tailspin of tailspins here But yesterday Even the Colts That's another big story there Because the Colts In a first place showdown with the Texans And Jacoby Brissett Who is looking like He's trying to dispel all the And I'm not going to say there's a ton of adversity Thrown at him since the retirement of Andrew Luck But I wasn't a believer either Because I picked them also as an under at 7.5 and, and here they are at 4-2 and two, Flying high in the AFC South so that was a big win for them. And the Colts usually have the Texans' number, but even more so when Andrew Luck was the quarterback. So pretty seamless from Luck to now Brissett, being able to do the number and do the job on a Houston Texan team, which, I, they're to me, they're Jekyll and Hyde. From one week to the next, they look like they could be the second best team in the AFC, and then they just look like a middle of the pack team. And yesterday you kind of saw that in Indianapolis. What the Saints did in... Chicago, that was a surprise. Here is the Saint team where they don't have their quarterback, and they've been pretty much. I'm not listen. When you look at the Saint team, even with Teddy Bridgewater, and we know he's a capable quarterback in this league, and he's shown that over the last few weeks, but he's not outstanding. He just does. He does just enough. Yesterday, he did more than enough, and against the Bear defense that now is looking like it's overrated. Where at the start of the year, it looked like it could be a top two three defense. But here they are, Saints now at six and one. They have an, uh, another game next week, and then they have a bye. And after that, you figured Drew Brees would be back into the fold, as far as taking over the quarterback position there down in New Orleans, and see if they could get to the lofty expectations that they've had coming into this year. And the Bears, uh, listen, I understand. Trubisky has just been an abs- He's been an abomination, and I'm sure. Sports Talk shows in Chicago are looking to get him out of town, which is not going to happen considering he was a number one pick two years ago, but he has certainly not shown any improvement. And here was a guy who had ability last year, took his team to the postseason, was able to run with the football a little bit, and he has just regressed big time. Ravens made a statement in Seattle. Seattle five and one. The Ravens, I get people are on that Lamar Jackson bandwagon. I and I know a couple of people. I got to see more. And we could see the way he performs with his legs. There is no if, ands, buts, and that this guy is, is elusive. And he could be borderline unstoppable. But when the chips are down, and when the game is in the pocket, where whatever defenses, just look at that charger tape from the wild card game last year. When you keep this guy in the pocket, let me see him perform on that level. So the way he runs, the way his running game is, the way he performs on the ground, let me see him do that, anything close to that in the air. And then I'll be a believer. And I understand he had a bunch of drop balls in the game yesterday. His tight end certainly didn't bail him out. He had some putrid numbers. As a matter of fact, let me see if I can pull these up real quick. But give credit to the Ravens and remind you, it, here's another thing. Their defense, they're also up and down, too, but they had two returns, a fumble and an interception return, one being Marcus Peters, 67 yards that accounted for 14 points and pretty much were the decisive points as they went 30-16. to 16, Homecoming for Earl Thomas. Obviously they didn't have good things to say about his former team and particularly his coach, but it was a big win. His teammates backed him up, etc. But here you are, Lamar Jackson fans. When you're 9 for 20 for 143 yards, I get that you could run 14 for 118 and a touchdown, but that's not going to happen every week. There's going to come a point where you're going to have to Make some plays in the pocket. I've seen this movie, and I'm sure NFL fans have seen this movie a million times before. No matter what your name is. Whether it's Randall Cunningham, whether it's Michael Vick, whether it's Dante Culpepper, whether it's Robert Griffin III. Doesn't matter. These guys, that are the running quarterbacks, and I understand that's what the league wants. They want to have a scrambling quarterback. They want to have an elusive quarterback. They want to have a mobile quarterback, and that's fine. But when you have a guy that his game is more predicated on his legs than his arm, even Donovan McNabb to a certain extent. And McNabb, to me, out of all those, were better than all those guys. And people would say, well, he was better than Michael Vick. Vick had the arm, but he was inaccurate. And same for McNabb. McNabb was the most accurate guy, but he didn't throw a lot of interceptions. That was a good thing about McNabb's game. But we've seen this movie before. And at the end of the day, it's not about fantasy points. It's not about, oh, this is the guy I want on my fantasy team. It's about winning Super Bowls. It's about a winning culture. It's about a guy that you know that you can rely on, not only with his legs, but predominantly with his arm. That's like saying, I want to, as an NBA player, I want to be a great shooter, but I'm only going to cross over and take at the top of the key and drive to the basket 100 times a game. And as elusive and I'm going to shake you off the dribble and so on and so forth. But yeah, but I want to become a great shooter. But all you're going to do is throw up bricks and build houses in the process. And that's not to say that Lamar Jackson is not working on his game as a quarterback. But to me, he relies too much more on his legs than he does his arm. And again, playing quarterback is all about your arm. And making big throws in big spots and big times. Jury's still out. We know that. He's only, he's a baby. But I just think that the Ravens... And more so their coaching staff, I'm sure that they don't 100% trust him as far as throwing the ball. So if they could go ahead and make plays with his legs, they're going to do that. And they're going to ride that out until that gets tired and God forbid he gets hurt. But that's another story. But that's pretty much what you had. I mean, of course, the Cowboys made a statement there last night with the game against the Eagles. And the Eagles certainly 3-4 and right now. And they have a big game next week. To see if they get to the, you know, if they get to three and five, and we understand NFL season could certainly turn on a dime at any point. But they go to Buffalo next week, and that's going to be a huge game for them. That they're going to need to win that one just to get to five hundred, because we all know the NFC is stacked. There's a bunch of teams there that are certainly putting themselves in good position to make it to the postseason. Whether you're in the NFC West in particular, you have three teams there that look like they're going to represent. The NFC as far as the postseason is concerned. We know about the Saints. Carolina who had a bye. They've certainly turned their season around with Kyle Allen of all people. You look at the NFC North, where it's Green Bay, Minnesota. I know the Lions have had some tough luck there. That Monday night game against Green Bay with the penalties. Not to say that the Lions are going to be any factor, but again, you know, Minnesota also. Kirk Cousins, do you believe in him right now? He's certainly on a roll here these last few weeks, but he's another guy. Money on the line. Mm. <laughs> but that's what you have here. Week seven. And then when you look at this upcoming week, and you do not have a good slew of games. Uh, just look at the Thursday night game. Redskins-Vikings? Ooh, go to sleep. And there's uh, going to be no World Series games, so that's the only thing you're going to be watching, unless you've got some NBA or maybe some NHL to watch. Eagles-Bills. Man, you got slim pickings this week, Jack. Panthers-Niners. Browns-Patriots. Only from a standpoint of can the Browns turn the season around, especially with all the talent on offense going up against that Patriot defense. Your Sunday night game, and I didn't mention that. Other big story from the weekend. Pat Mahomes with the dislocated kneecap. Now, they say it's only going to be a few weeks, but mm, remains to be seen. you talk talking about a knee. And for those out there who are thinking, oh, why did they sneak it in a fourth and one? Look what happened. It was a freak play. How many times you've seen in the history of the league a quarterback going for a sneak to get a first down and he has to hobble off the field because he has a dislocated kneecap? I mean, come on. But Packers and Chiefs lose a little bit of its luster. was lose a lot of it, let's face it. Matt Moore will fill in for Pat Mahomes there. And then your Monday night game, you want to talk, talk about going to sleep. And it involves my team, unfortunately. It's Dolphins-Steelers. Woo! So, yeah, you really have a week that uh, you know, Jets-Jaguars and Raiders-Texans, Cardinals-Saints. Give credit to the Cardinals, though. they plaques actually played well. They won three in a row. I understand they beat the Giants and the Bengals and teams like that. But to go 0-3-1 and to win your next three after that, certainly some progress is going on in the desert there. Giants-Lions. And, please, can we get off the Danny Dimes nickname? That is just, who came up with that? I know Bill Simmons was raving about that a few weeks ago with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I got nothing against Bill. I love him, but Danny Dimes, Danny Dimes. That, that is the worst nickname for, unless he's a point guard on a team where he's assisting left and right and you just drop and die. All right, I could get that, but as a quarterback, please. That, that's just an awful name. Chargers, Bears. The Chargers lose in excruciating fashion as they always do. They seem to always invent ways to lose. So that's what you have there for a week. Number eight. As far as college football is concerned, you look at the injury to Tua Tagovailoa, I can't pronounce this guy's name, to save my life. The Alabama quarterback, Tagovailoa. Before the end of the year, I'm going to get this name down, Pat. So, Yeah, he suffered that high ankle sprain where he actually is going to, I believe he had surgery yesterday on it. It's this tightrope surgery that actually goes through the tibia. And as we all know, high ankle sprains in the NFL are, they never heal in season, Never. So this is to his other ankle. Remember last year he had, I believe it was his right ankle. Now it's the left one where it has been operated on. And they do play Arkansas this week, which will be a win. Then they have a bye. And then the matchup November 9th against LSU, who is right now ranked number two in the nation. And certainly their rival for many years. We're certainly going to see how that shakes down down the road. But as for now, I don't think it's going to have any effect. Alabama is a team that as we all know, even if they lose a game, they're going to somehow, someway be in the mix now. Who knows? If they lose to LSU and then somehow make it to the SEC championship game and lose that game, then you're not going to see Alabama in the Final Four for the college football playoff. But I would think they're going to be fine leading up to that LSU game. And LSU has not being Alabama in a big spot in forever. Even going back to the championship game, I believe it was in 2012, and they lost 21 nothing. So if you're... Alabama you're going to be I'm not going to say sitting pretty But you know you're going to be fine here over the next two weeks And they're thinking that Tool will be back by that November 9th matchup Which will be epic If uh, LSU doesn't stub their toe over the next couple weeks Whether or not they do or don't doesn't matter Because it's still going to be a big matchup So that's what you got there with Alabama Their situation You also look at Wisconsin losing To Illinois the other day, down 10 points. And again, it was on the road so it could happen, but they're down 10 points with five minutes to go and they end up losing the game, especially on a last-second field goal. That's tough for them for any chance of them trying to make it to the top four as they drop down to 13. And they play Ohio State this weekend. So that's one of the many matchups that you have. LSU-Auburn is also a game you're going to look at this weekend. Notre Dame and Michigan who lost to Penn State the other day and you can forget about Michigan involved in any conversations and you would think this is going to be it for Harbaugh. I mean, it has to. It seems like they've regressed as opposed to progress here and as we all know, if he loses to Ohio State again late next month then Jim Harbaugh is probably going to be looking for NFL teams to try to uh, hire him because that experiment certainly has not worked out in Ann Arbor. So college football is certainly going to get a little bit interesting here. Right now, you had Clemson even drop again. Although they're ranked fourth in the AP Top 25, but Clemson, who had that scare a few weeks ago against South Carolina, certainly hasn't been as dominant as they were early on in the season. So now here they are ranked fourth with LSU and Ohio State ahead of them. Of course, Bama number one. Oklahoma, Penn State are five and six. Penn State's certainly moving up the ranks as the uh, weeks continue to click off here as we're approaching a week nine. In the college football season Then you have Florida Notre Dame, Auburn and Georgia To round out the top 10 And you're going to see Maybe this weekend If Auburn can pull up an upset Will they move up there a little bit Considering right now they're ninth. Notre Dame, Michigan Who knows This will be the game Michigan Will bounce back and beat Notre Dame And knock them off the top 10 So you're going to have some matchups here As the college football season Starts to get a little bit juicier but right now, I don't think those top four teams, unless anything happens, like I said, with LSU or when they play Bama in a few weeks, if they're both at chalk, uh, you don't think that a lot of the college football season will be topsy-turvy, will be upended here between now and then. And let's see if Tua does come back to play in that game. You know, Having a surgery like that, when you think about it, to, for him to come back and play effectively on that high ankle sprain just three weeks after having that surgery, even with a bye in playing Arkansas, it's going to be surprising. And even though we kind of saw that last year with the championship game and him being able to come back, but still, three weeks, quick turnaround, and to go up against an LSU team who knows they're going to try to do whatever they can to pressure him to have him be as mobile as possible on that ankle, to really work that ankle, certainly going to uh, watch that closely, especially when he – comes back here, you would think, that second week of November. All right, now I'm going to turn my attention to the NBA. And as like I said on the top, I did not have a guest set up for this considering I was away and just the time constraint was going to be really cut close. And I certainly don't want to put out a preview on Thursday or Friday or even the following week for that matter. So I figured I'd just run through the league real quick, just to kind of give you a few storylines, what I feel of what could transpire throughout the course of the season. I'll give you some over under numbers, predict an NBA championship, and just take it from there. So my apologies for not going full in-depth as far as an NBA preview is concerned, but nevertheless, you know I will certainly give you my take on uh, possibly what to expect this coming year, and to me, there are a few storylines. The first one is that the league is as wide open as it is for an NBA champion than it has been for quite some time. As we all know, for years past, it was always Golden State-Cleveland. Or if there was another team in the West, it may have been Houston. That was, or even before that, when LeBron was in Miami, it was always Miami and somebody else, as we saw, it was Miami and San Antonio two times. And then you want to sprinkle in OKC and Dallas those two years that they were down there. But again, it was usually two or three teams that were the favorites to win an NBA title. And you were just pretty much left with whatever else was going to be played leading up until the playoffs the conference championship, and then the NBA championship, which was usually Golden State against somebody else. But now we don't have to worry about that because Golden State, as we all know, they're on the mend with Klay Thompson and D'Angelo Russell as Kevin Durant is now here in Brooklyn. You have your situation with the Lakers, Anthony Davis. We know all the player movement, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to the Clippers, etc. So with all those teams being thrown into the NBA blender, so to speak, you could pretty much come up with about arguably... Eight teams That could Contend for an NBA title To me unfortunately only two are in the east And that's Milwaukee and Philadelphia Where the others both LA teams Denver, Utah, Houston Are the other teams that to me Will contend for an NBA title Out west I'm not going to say Portland because they're too backcourt driven And I understand that Even if you have guys that could certainly light it up Throughout the course of a night But as we all know in a 7 game series Even if both of those guys could go off for 30 points each where are you going to get the other 30 to 40 points to win a game and over as I said a 7 game series where you have a coach that could pretty much key on either one or both of those guys where are you going to get the rest of those points and although I think Portland will be very good and Portland as we saw they made it to a Western Conference final last year but to me as far as making it to an NBA final I don't think Portland has enough to get there. I think Denver can. I think Utah can. That's not to say they will. Houston. We'll see with that Russ Harden experiment. And that's a storyline in, in its own right. And I said this at the time of the trade. And I'll say it now. I'm sure year one. I'm sure 40, 50, 60 games in will be great. But let's see. Come later in the year. And especially in the postseason. How that unfolds. I understand buddy buddy. Behind them playing a game six. And right. Those guys go way back. And that's not to say that there's going to be any type of dissension between the two. But when you have two of the top dominant ball guards in the league and they're going to need to coexist on the court at the same time, we know the type of competitor Russ is, and we've seen over the last few years the player that James Harden has become. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a recipe for success when you have those top two guys in the league on the same team. To me, it's like having Chris Paul all over again, but Westbrook is a lot better than Chris Paul. And despite the fact they played with each other in OKC and they've been buddies forever, business and pleasure, as we all know sometimes, do not mix. Also, Zion, this injury to Zion Williamson certainly puts a damper on things, being out for an indefinite amount of time. I know he said a few weeks, but who knows with a knee. And you know that the Pelicans are not going to rush this guy back. We get that he's, I'm sure, sold a lot of season tickets. We know how hyped he is coming into his rookie season. But this knee issue, although they say it's not anything to be overly concerned about, but when you look at the type of game he plays, how he's above the rim, how he attacks the rim, you certainly have to take your prize possession, your prize number one pick, and certainly use him with kid gloves. That's not to say that, oh, we're only going to play him 20 points a night but you want to bring him back 100% healthy so he could go at it full attack mode throughout the course of an 82 game NBA season or in this case whatever it may be 70 games, 65 games, etc. And it also puts a damper on opening night because the first game will be the banner raising to the Raptors up in Toronto where the first game is between New Orleans and the Raptors and you're not going to see a one Zion Williamson on the national stage To open up the, raise the curtain of this 2019-2020 NBA season. See if I can get that out correctly. Jeez. And then you have the second game, which is Lakers-Clippers. Which you will not see Paul George as he's on the show for a month. So that's what you have there. Other than that, to me, those are everything that I just pretty much encapsulated in that, whatever, three, four minute, five minute, Preview That's what the NBA season Is going to be You know You're not going to look at Oh what's going to happen In Brooklyn When is Kevin Durant Coming back I'm not even going to Go there with that When he comes back He comes back If it so happens to be The Nets make it To the postseason And he's there for round one Whoa great Fantastic Until then Uh uh He's not on the team The Nets will be An improvement Of course Kyrie is All warm and fuzzy here Dural camp They'll probably be a 45 win team. Make it to the postseason. How far they go, who knows? They'll probably win around. They could win around, but besides that, and that's why I said at the top, Milwaukee and Philly are certainly the class of the East. Now we understand you have other teams like Indiana, who brought in Malcolm Brogdon from the Bucks to an already good team. The Celtics now with no Kyrie and Kemba Walker added to their roster with Jalen Brown. Who's going into a year in his contract And Jason Tatum wants to erase that sophomore slump that he had And Gordon Hayward You would think it would be 100% Now there are other good teams in the East too The Pistons you would think that they're going to Improve They made it to an 8th seed although they got swept by the Bucs But they're looking to See how high they can get in the East But at the end of the day it's going to be Milwaukee Philadelphia And out West You know Golden State could be your 6th seed When you look at the landscape out there, whether it's Clippers, Lakers, Denver, Utah, Houston, and then who's going to bottom out there? Will Sacramento, with their young players, and Buddy Heal just signed a long-term deal today? Will the Kings make a push there to make the postseason? The Timberwolves, who have the young talent, but certainly have not been able to put it all together? Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, who I know Wiggins said last week, oh, I'm one of the top 100 players in the league. Well, he's got to show and prove it. And you know what? He's probably... Ranked in the top 100. I don't know where that poll came from or what have you. But he's probably in the 90s, 80s at best. We know he has the talent. But for whatever reason, he hasn't been able to translate it on a consistent basis to be a top-notch, all-star type player. When I look at this league here, and I understand I could give maybe a little Celtic preview, which I won't. Because to me, just like I mentioned, the Celtics, I think that they could be anywhere between 3 and 5 in the Eastern Conference. They're probably going to be sacrificial lambs. To the Sixers in the next round. Because I think the Bucks are going to be. A one seed. I mean also got to throw Toronto in the mix. As far as being that three to six slot. But I think it's going to be the Bucks division. And Bucks conference to lose. I think Giannis is. Despite the fact that everything Philly's done this offseason. But I think Giannis. He wants to take his game to another level. Being up 2-0 against Toronto and then getting swept the next four games, I'm sure that probably left a bad taste in his mouth. We know Giannis is the type of guy where he doesn't fraternize with a lot of the other NBA players. He's pretty much in private, goes about his business, and I'm sure he's probably going to come back even with that much more redemption on his brain. But that's what you have there to me in the East. And that to put that with the Celtics, could they could be third or fifth. And if they happen to be fifth, then that means they'll play the Bucks in round two, which we saw what happened last year, and I can't see why this year would be any different. And I understand Taco Fall, the legend of Taco Fall has begun. But he has signed a two-way deal where he's going to be back and forth to the G League and the, the big club. We all know about his size. We all know about, again, he, he, this preseason, everybody's falling in love with him in Boston. But when you're seven six and you're raw as raw can be, that doesn't necessarily mean that at that height, you're going to come in and tear the league up by storm. If that was the case, he would have been a number one pick. So how I look at it this year, before I get to my NBA final, I'm going to quickly go through these over-under numbers. So when you look at the over-unders, as we all know, Vegas puts out the odds of how many wins that they're going to project to win this year and you're either going to bet the over-under. Now, of course, this is for fun. I'm not betting. So as I like to say, and I haven't said in quite some time, if you happen to use any of these over-under numbers in the next 24 hours before the season starts and you happen to win money, I know for damn sure you're not going to send me a check or a partial check or whatever it may be. And on the flip side of that, if it just so happens that you take any of my over-under numbers and you happen to lose, don't come looking for me to say, Jay I just bet the house and thanks to you, uh, I'm out on the street. Sorry, not going to happen. So let's get right to it. I'm just going to go my six picks, three overs, three unders. I'll start with the unders first just to get them out of the way. I'm picking two easy ones because I can't seem to be successful with these if I try to get cute or try to get slick with these. Charlotte, 23.5 is an under. I understand they have a Kentucky connection there with P.J. Washington, Malik Monk, and Michael Kid uh, Gilchrist. But as we all know, even with Terry Rozier swapped out for Kemba Walker, this team... They certainly can't get out of their own way. I could see them maybe top winning 20 games with the roster that they have. So I'm picking them as an under. And I also have to pick Washington. Washington's a team where it's Bradley Beal and nobody else. I understand they have Isaiah Thomas, but we all know he's a shell of his old self, especially from his last season in Boston. And with no John Wall to be found and pretty much nobody else in that lineup, 28 and a half, I'm picking Washington as an under. My surprise under, and although they'll have a good year, but I don't think they're going to win 55 games, is Utah. I'm picking them as an under. And we understand Mike Conley and uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who's was a good three-point shooter, formerly the Indiana Pacers, bounced around everywhere. He's with the Nets, of course, at one point earlier in his career, but he was last of the Indiana Pacers. Although they made some upgrades there, and we all know about Rudy Gobert, who's going to command the low post, and as a defensive force, because the West is so loaded and they're going to win their games. I'm not sitting here to say, oh, they're going to win you know, 38 games or 42 or whatever. I just don't think they're going to win 55, and the number's 54 and a half, so I'm picking them as an under. As far as my overs are concerned, Philadelphia at 54 and a half. I think they're going to bully the whole league. I think even though I have Milwaukee being the one seed, Philly is a lock for a two, and it could be a one seed. You never know what injuries, we never know how the season's going to unfold. But how I look at it is is that Philly, with the way they've constructed their team for the regular season, and even for the postseason for that matter, considering you bring in a guy like Al Horford, they re-sign Tobias Harris. Of course, Ben Simmons, who when he made that three-pointer at the end of that game, everybody went crazy. It was just one shot. I I understand he's never made a three-pointer in his life, but still, I need to see a consistent die to that, not just one shot. And at 54.5, I think they'll be over that. I don't like him in the playoffs, and I'll get to them in a minute. So that's one of my overs. My second over, I'm going to pick Indiana, 46.5. I like Brogdon, the addition with him. We talked about Oladipo coming back. He'll be 100% full healthy. You know, Miles Turner, uh, Sabonis' son. They have a good young group. They obviously overachieved last year, even with Oladipo out of the lineup. So with him back in at 46.5, I picked them as an over. They could probably win 50 games as one of those teams that could fall between three and six in the East. And then my surprise over, I'm going to pick Atlanta at 33 and a half. Trey Young, who had a great second half to his rookie year last year. You want to throw in Cam Reddish. John Collins, who was a surprise last year, who certainly made that team at least bearable to watch if you're looking at a young, up-and-coming, rising team. That's not to say that they're going to win, you know, 40 games and make it to you know as an eighth seed in the East, but with that, also, drafting DeAndre Hunter, the kid from Virginia, who came from a winning program. You also add in veterans Evan Turner. You also want to look at Vince Carter going into his last year of his career. Uh, I'm sure that could be a fun team to watch. I'm not again. This isn't to say that they're making the postseason. This isn't to say that they're going to shock the world by any stretch. But 33 and a half, and considering the way they played toward the second half of last year, they certainly improved along the way. I think that they'll go a little bit over that. And choose them as an over here this year in the NBA. So again, to recap, Charlotte 23.5 to my unders. Charlotte 23.5, Washington 28.5, Utah 54.5. And and my overs are Philly at 54.5, Atlanta 33.5, and and Indiana 46.5. And And my NBA final, you know, I'm not going to think long and hard about this. I, I said Milwaukee coming out of the East. Philly I don't trust for two reasons. One, the coach. And two, I don't trust Joel Embiid. I don't trust him in a big spot. I understand it's not all about him, but it is his team. He's part of this process. He was the building block for this process. And I'm sure he's coming to this year in great shape considering all the rumors about him not sticking to a proper diet and not being as in shape, especially when you got into the postseason. But the thing, the one thing I don't like about him, he has a lot of Dwight Howard in him. And if you've watched Dwight Howard throughout his career, he's just a front running player. I need to see Joel Embiid not just be angry and mad and stick his chest out. No. But when the game gets ugly, when a game is not going his way, I need to see him mature and be still a dominant force. And that's what Dwight Howard would, would, never was. So until I see strides from him and especially the coach, then I'll pick him in his NBA final. But I got Milwaukee. I can't pick the Lakers. I'm not even going to pick the Clippers because even with the whole load management deal, I just, there's, to me, there's just, uh, the scent is off on that team. I'm I, i, I uh, I'm sure they'll have a successful year. I'm sure they'll be fine. I'm sure they'll be well, which is great. But just for grins and giggles, I, and I want to go a different path because I hate to keep picking the same teams all the time. I'm going to pick the Denver Nuggets. And I'm sure everybody's falling out of their chairs right now. I'm sure people are saying, oh, my God, Jay Reels, how could you do that? How could you not pick LeBron? How could you not pick the Clippers? Even the Rockets, I would tell you, say J-Reels. Come on. I'm just being different. Why not? Let the NBA have to choke on a Denver-Milwaukee. And we understand Giannis and the most underrated player in the league and Nikola Jokic, but wouldn't that be something that the NBA had a Denver-Milwaukee NBA final? Yeah. I'm sure Adam Silver would be uh, choking on his tea and crumpets in the morning if... uh, that would have happened, but again, I'm sure this p- prediction is uh, going to go by the wayside. I mean, Milwaukee will make it, will make it, but the Denver probably not. But hey, uh, as cockamamie as that was, again, Clippers. I just don't see it. Lakers, again, Houston. I don't trust the coaches. We all know, and the Westbrook Harden factor. We'll see, but that's going to be my uh, NBA final right there. All right, and then uh, to wrap up here, NHL. Uh, just quickly, Buffalo's off to a very good start considering that they've been the dregs of the league for so long. 7-1-1, and also Colorado and Edmonton. Edmonton, as I talked about during my NHL preview, it was time for them to step up and take a stand, and they've certainly gone off to a ra- uh, ravishing start. 7-1-1 and for them. And when you look on the negative side, Ottawa, as we all know, they traded all their players by the deadline last year, Matthew Shane, etc. cetera. And here they are sitting at 1-5-1. and Even San Jose off to a slow start, 3 and 5 Islanders, they started off slow, but they've won four in a row. Devils, Jack Hughes got his first goal the other night against Vancouver. The number one pick of the draft this past year. And the Rangers off to a little bit of a slow start. They're right now 2-4 and four, coming off a loss to Vancouver yesterday. So that's what you got there with the NHL. We'll get into more NHL as time moves forward. But uh, as for now, my hero in zero of the week. Now this is over the last couple of weeks, so bear with me as I say. Now, I forgive me as I'm typing up my notes here. The Kenya runner who had the sub-two-hour marathon, and bad job on my part. I should have his name here. And again, when I was doing all this, I just wrote that down. And here I am, a little bit unprepared. So my apologies ahead of time. But for him to run a sub-two-hour marathon, which I understand this wasn't in a competitive nature. It wasn't a New York marathon. It wasn't the Berlin marathon, Boston, et cetera. But for him to do that, certainly rocked the running world. Nobody has ever done it in the history of the, any marathon, for that matter. And because it wasn't the competitive nature, people were ready to rot and would knock it. Ah, you know, it wasn't didn't really count. I'd, sorry, if there's a clock involved and it's a sanctioned race, it counts. Okay? So, with that being said, he is my hero of the week. And as I'm, believe it or not, as I'm telling you this right now, I'm actually trying to type up the guy's name and make sure that I give him his Do because it would be an injustice on my part And as bad as it is I'm already spending too much time on it Trying to pull up his name With the sub 2 marathon Here it is Iluid You know me with names Iliud Kiposh Or Kipchoge Believe that Kipchoge E-L-I-U-D First name Last name K-I-P-C-H-O-G-E So there you go Uh, I can't even pronounce some of the half of these names as you know and they're probably the easiest names to pronounce but kudos to him to have the sub time sub two hour time of one hour 59 minutes and 40 seconds I mean what could you say doesn't get any better than that and then my loser of the week and I understand this could be a three hour conversation I get but I will not do that as I will just go ahead and say this for Daryl Morey the GM of the Houston Rockets the tweet in reference to what's going on there in Hong Kong The anti-government protests that are taking place Him saying Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong We understand that he apologized afterwards Even the Rockets came out and said that His views, his words aren't in the same As the organization Adam Silver chimed in, LeBron James chimed in But Daryl Morey And we get that freedom of speech we get that the Rockets were in China and their connection with Yao Ming and the Chinese Basketball Association, how much Yao Ming means to the Rockets and vice versa, the Chinese basketball, etc. And who am I to say that he shouldn't have said that? Right. Freedom of speech, et cetera. We get that. But at the same time, knowing what's going on there to actually make a comment while he's there about that, that's something he should have thought about not only once, but two times over. And maybe I'll get into this a little bit more. I understand it's a story that's pretty much now gone, but he should have used a a little bit better judgment and putting out a post like that because that just caused a frenzy throughout, whether it was, oh, the NBA's in bed with China, so they know they're making all this money and so on and so forth. And then LeBron chiming in about that, which he got slaughtered from pillow to post. But again, this is about Daryl Morey, my zero of the week, and obviously making those comments about Hong Kong. So that's going to do it here for this podcast. I know I ran a little bit longer than I should, so I hope you were entertained, informed, and uh, certainly stuck by me throughout the course of this hour in 10, 12 minutes, whatever it may be. So with that being said, people, I do hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that you would also participate in this small, simple fashion. If you could just go ahead and subscribe to this podcast wherever you you sign up for your podcast, whether it's on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts Spreaker Stitcher Spotify Luminary iHeartRadio, Or any platform That you may Get your podcasts from All that's going to do Is you subscribe Leave a rating Post a review It's going to Increase visibility Amongst all the other Sports podcasts That are out there In the universe And at the same time Generate some visibility For those who could Get an idea of Who I am What the podcast Is all about So on and so forth So I could get Certain guests To this program Whether it's Former or current Athletes writers, broadcasters, bloggers, etc. because all I want to do is not only expand on this to not only deliver the sports news and sports chatter and my opinions thoughts etc every Monday but also have another one later on in the week, twice a week moving forward. So with your participation if you could do that people, I'll be forever indebted as well as all of my social media accounts whether you follow me on Instagram, jreels, Twitter, jreels1 just a number the J Reels Podcast on my Facebook page. And also you can send me an email at the at gmail.com. Questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, please feel free to reach out to me on any of those platforms as I'll be sure to follow up with you on those. If you want to make a contribution to the podcast, you can go to my Patreon page. That's P is and Paul, A-T is in Tom, reo dot com slash the J Reels Podcast. What that is, it's a page for you to go check me out as far as what I'm doing behind the scenes to contribute to this podcast, whether it's production, whether it's advertising, whether it's equipment, etc. So whatever you'd like to contribute towards my endeavor here which would be so greatly appreciated. So if you want to check that page out feel free to do so as I deliver each and every week everything that goes on in the world of the diamond in the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood. Golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, to South Beach, to South Central, to South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the j Podcast, on the flip, baby.